you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. If you didn't bookmark that last week, you need to today. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 down to chapter 2 verse 5. That's what we're going to see today. And we're going to see that continuing in the faith is rooted in the character of God. That if you're a believer, your continuation in the faith is rooted in the character of God. Living by faith in God's character. It is essential to your life in Christ. And all of you came in today with issues that are probably um, questions that are not answered or have caused perplexity in your life. I just want to say that in the midst of every issue we face, we must live by faith. We kicked off a five-week verse-by-verse journey through Habakkuk last Sunday. We immediately found ourselves in the deep end of the God's sovereignty over evil pool. And we saw in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, that God's ways are routinely misunderstood. We saw that God's ways are mysterious. They're hard to figure out. We saw that his ways are magnificent, that God in his just wrath against sin remembers his mercy. We saw in chapter 1, like in the days of Amos and Micah, justice had disappeared from the land. Unrighteousness and violence and wickedness were going unchecked. And these were the dark days in which Habakkuk cries out to God in prayer and basically says, how long is this going to go on, Lord? Israel is living in sin. Why, God, do you let them go unpunished? We saw in the last part of last week's passage, verses 5 through 11, we saw God respond. God very clearly said, you know what? I am going to deal with it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to judge Judah. So as we will see today, uh, this creates a bigger dilemma for Habakkuk. Now he has a bigger problem on his hands. How can God use a wicked nation to judge his chosen people? It brings up cosmic questions like, why does God allow evil? And how do we reconcile God's seeming inactivity in the face of horrendous evils in the world? How do we figure this out? How does God fit into what is going on in the world? How do we follow by faith? So today, as we continue on in Habakkuk, we will see what characterizes living by faith in God's character. I invite you to stand with me if you're able. We stand for the reading of God's word here out of reverence for God and his word. I want to remind you, as I remind you almost every week, that this is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. So Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, 
he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in giving us your word. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts, in our homes, in your household, and use us for your glory. Change us by your magnificent mercy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So who out there watches the news? Let me see by a show of hands. You, you watch the news, you listen to the news, you read the news. It's a good thing to, to know what's going on in the world, right? You know, watch it, listen to it, read it, discuss it. But it's essential that as we do, we interpret accurately the news in light of God's plan. Otherwise, you're going to follow all sorts of tangents and mistakenly think that reformation will come through politics or government. It will not. If believers are truly to live by faith, then we should not speculate about what so-and-so should or should not do. But we should yield to and we should focus on what God said he will do. This is the dilemma that Habakkuk was facing around about 640 to 615 B.C. Same dilemma we are facing daily in 2017 A.D. The problem facing Habakkuk was that if Jehoiakim had chastised God's people with whips, the Chaldeans were now going to chastise them with scorpions. And if God's apparent silence posed a problem for faith, bigger still is the problem posed by his choosing as instruments of his righteous judgment, invaders whose brutality and unrighteousness was in defiance towards God. Now, the answer is simple. God's ways are his own. They're misunderstood. They're mysterious. They're hard to figure out. But they are magnificent. They're magnificent in their scope and in their depth because they show his mercy and his grace. You see, when you don't understand God's ways, you're either going to believe what the word of God says about him or what the world says about him. It necessitates living by faith 
in the character of God. Your continuing in the faith is contingent upon the character of God. It takes us back to Habakkuk. It takes us right to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. And by way of introduction, F.F. Bruce writes, The prophet, having first complained to God about the injustice of Jehoiakim's rule, and having been told that the Chaldeans are to be the executors of divine judgment against him, complains next that the cure is worse than the disease. It's like some of you taking medicines that cause you know, worse side effects than the illness they're meant to cure. But Habakkuk lived by faith in God's character, and so should we. If we're to continue in the faith, we must do as Habakkuk did, and so let's first look at what he did. First thing he did, and you see this in, in verse 12 here, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. Habakkuk, to deal with quandary, rehearses familiar truths. You want to mark that down, because this is what you need to do and what I need to do when we are faced with the quandary in terms of how evil is, is allowed to basically exist you got to back away from the problem. You've got to back up to known truths, to what you already know. You get on solid ground. Here's Habakkuk backing off the thin ice and standing on the solid rock of Scripture. He goes to back to what he knows for sure to help him come to a conclusion about what he doesn't know for sure. It's a compass. Look at verse 12. It begins this way. Are you not from everlasting? He's addressing God in prayer. He is saying, God, you are eternal. God is eternal. Much different than the Chaldeans' false make-believe gods. He says, my God is eternal. And you are self-existent. Verse 12, O Lord, my God. Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, name of God, the I am, the eternally self-existing one. God is eternal, God is self-existent. Still look at verse 12. My holy one, he is holy. God is holy, utterly perfect in righteousness and holiness. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He does everything right. He is not affected or dependent upon what happens in the world. Self-existent, self-determining. God is eternal, God is self-existent, God is holy. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? We're still in verse 12. Habakkuk says, we shall not die. It's because God is faithful. You want to rest in the character of God, you believe that he is faithful to all his promises. He had made an unconditional covenant with Israel, a unilateral, one-sided covenant to Abraham, that, that they would be a nation as, as great, as numerous as the uncountable sand on the seashore. They confirmed that covenant again and again and again. Isaac and Jacob and onward. God is faithful. We, we shall not die. And we're still in verse 12. Look again at verse 12. O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my holy one? We shall not die. Verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. God is almighty. 
all-powerful, sovereignty in action. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign will. He is omnipotent, El Shaddai, the omnipotent one. This is our God. Behold, your God. And the question he's asking is, God, how? How? In, in your holiness, can you use an unholy instrument for your holy purposes? How can you do this? The prophet cannot fully understand the sovereign workings of God, but he displays complete trust in God. He expresses complete trust in God. He is rehearsing the unchangeable character of God. God, you are eternal. You are sovereign. You're holy. And he realizes something as he is, he is rehearsing God's, God's goodness. The Chaldeans were coming to correct them and not to annihilate them. And he says, God, you are my rock. Oh, rock. That is a title for God that expresses his immovable and unshakable character. God is who he says he is in his word, and that will never change. Everyone we know, you know, changes. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. God does not change. And so Habakkuk could move to what he did not know in light of what he did know. That's what you and I need to do. Rehearse familiar truths in perplexing times. This is what you need to do in perplexing times. Lord, I, I don't know how this is going to work out. Lord, I do not have the answer. I, I do not know how to figure this out. What, what's our first mode? Let's tackle the problem. Let's, let's, let's beat it to a bloody pulp. Let's just take care of this. But the only way it is to back off, to back away, and to stop and think about the God you know. And remember who he is. And remember that he is eternal, and that he is self-existent, and that he is holy, and that he is faithful, and that he is almighty. This will get you through, because he will get you through. I don't know what biblical truths keep you tethered in trying times, but I fall back on the presence of God. Lord, I know you're with me. And I know that you are all-knowing, and I know that you are all-powerful. So whatever happens, it's gonna work out. So Habakkuk finds himself Back on solid ground. And he says, you know, I'm sure of this. Verse 13, God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil. You're, you're holy. He restates that. And he says, and you cannot look at wrong. You hate sin. You can't stand before evil. You always do what is right. And then what comes next has been the most encouraging part of Habakkuk for me so far. I hope for you as well. Because it shows me that Habakkuk is just like me and just like you. Because he, here he is on, on solid ground. And then he's kind of inching back towards this, the thin ice. 
and he, and he says, God, why do you idly look at traitors? God, I know you're holy, I know you're eternal, I know you're faithful, but, but why are you doing this, God? And Why are you remaining silent when the wicked swallows up the, swallows up the man more righteous than he? So I love this because this here gives all of us comfort that in spite of the prophet's expression of faith and trust, he finds himself in further perplexity. He's still confused. Have you ever been there? Are we not there every day? Are we not there every day? And the essence of his quandary is expressed in this verse. God, if, if you're too pure to behold evil, then how can you use the wicked to devour a person more righteous than he? But he goes back to God's sovereign character. Verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea. God, you're the creator. You're the sovereign creator. He's reminding himself. He's pulling himself back off the ledge. And then he says, like crawling things that have no ruler. Verse 14. He's speaking of those who have no knowledge of God because they do not acknowledge God. They know from creation that God exists, but they refuse to acknowledge him, Romans 1, and, and they, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Because he knows something that we know, that mankind is idolatrous. And they take God's, we take God's gracious gifts and craft them into hideous idols. He starts talking about mankind, verse 15. He brings all them up with a hook. They're fishing. He drags them out with his net. They're still fishing. He drags them into his dragnet, still fishing, and he rejoices and is glad because he caught a lot of fish. But what he's saying is that God is their power. That they worship the net that they catch the fish with. That they think their own might is their God. Verse 16, he sacrifices to his net. Probably one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. He, sat, he sacrifices to his net. This is, he's speaking of a nation of wholesale carnage and wickedness. He says he makes offerings to his dragnet. The net he's dragging fish in with, he's bowing down to it. And he thinks that that is what causes him to live in luxury and so his food is rich, and they're crediting in their wealth to their own might instead of the one true God. It's the biggest travesty. And not only that, life was cheap to the Chaldeans. They did not, they did not hold life as sacred. Habakkuk is calling attention to their evil character, their evil behavior in, in, in face of ruthless tactics of war, and other societies were like the fish of the sea, to them like creeping things. And, and in light of their reputation, he's asking God, how could you unleash this ruthless force upon your helpless people? In verse 17, he asks a very pointed question. Are you going to let him keep emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, who is full of mercy, are you going to let them still be unmerciful? How can they get away with it? How long is it going to go on? 
Will God tolerate it indefinitely? And God's answer comes in chapter 2. He won't. God is totally intolerant of sin. Sin and God are opposites. You can be sure of that. And just think for a moment about the eyes and the ears that God has given you and the mind he has given you to think with and eyes to see with and ears to hear with. Do you look around? Do you see injustice all around? Do you see incongruence? You, you might even be tempted to, to say, as the psalmist said, why do the wicked prosper? Why do evil people seem to get all the goodies? That's how idolatrous we are. We, we want the goodies. But what Habakkuk is saying is what we should say. Lord, I don't understand this problem, but I do understand you. You step back, you get on solid ground, and you do what Habakkuk did. He waited on God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. He's comparing himself to the watchman of Ezekiel standing sentinel on the city walls and he stations himself on the tower and he says, I'm going to look and see what God will say to me and then I'm going to consider how to reply. I'm going to consider what he says. So he solves the problem by backing up and rehearsing familiar truths. He's going to trust God and then wait on him. God might tell him how foolish he was not to trust him. He's going to take it. He knows God is the answer. He's like saying, God, help my unbelief. Reprove me, discipline me. He commits the problem to God. Commit your way to the Lord and he will bring it to pass. He's in the business of solving problems. You go to God and you wait on him. In 1846, George Mueller was having a hard time purchasing a field that he wanted to build a house for orphans on. And he was trusting God though. And he wrote, this is what he wrote, I'm fully assured that if the Lord were to take this piece of land from me, it would be only for the purpose of giving me something better instead. Our Heavenly Father never gives any earthly thing, never, excuse me, never takes any earthly things from his children, except he means to give them something better instead. You gotta rehearse familiar truths from God's inerrant word. Verse two, the Lord answers, write down the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. There it is. Write it down so they may run to others and tell them what it says. Because God is trustworthy. Look at verse three. God says, the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we must first remind ourselves of those things of which we are absolutely certain. Things which are entirely beyond a doubt. Write them down and say to yourself, in this terrible and perplexing situation in which I find myself, here at least is solid ground. I do not know what kind of questions that you're grappling with in prayer to God. But truth is, suffering precedes glory. He is good. God is good. You should not judge his actions. He is big enough to handle your questions. He's big enough to comfort you in your, in your hurting heart. And his word corrects your wrong thinking. It's a mercy from God. 
How do we know the Bible is reliable? God just said it right here. It will not lie. You write this down. It's going to happen. You ever get calls on your cell phone from telemarketers? Anyone? Well, this past week, as I often like to do when I get calls from my telemarketers calling me on my cell phone, I try to engage them with the gospel. It's only right. I consider them not not only an irritating nuisance, but someone who's just doing their job, but also that God had them call me so that I could preach the gospel to them. And I know it sounds funny to you, but this is my way of thinking. And the person calling says, is Larry there? I'm like, I'm not Larry. Operator says, uh, well, I have a free offer I'd like to share with you. I said, I'm not Larry. Can you take me on, put me on the do not call list? You know, ha ha, we're going to do that, right? Then I say, actually, hold on. I am more than willing to hear your pitch if you have a few minutes for me to tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Operator says, Jesus who? I say, the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins on the cross. Operator says, how can you believe a dead man? They found King Tut's bones, but none of the biblical characters. I say, I believe the word of God. Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead, and is returning. And by the way, if you don't believe this, this happened, my youngest, Sophia, was in the car on speakerphone with me. Operator says, you can't trust the Bible. It was written by men. And I say, no, it's from God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and given for, is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was thinking on my feet. And I said, Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And the operator says to his supervisor, presumably, uh, I'm not going to keep taking this call. Goodbye. God assures the complete reliability of Scripture. It says it here right in verse 3, chapter 2. It will not lie. There is nothing deceptive in God's words. Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. God's word will never lead you astray. In the the Bible, there is no mixture of error with truth. We hear lies all the time. You will never hear a lie from the word of God. It will surely come to be. It will come to pass as God spoke it, as it was written down, because the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God endures forever. It's the bedrock truth that you need to rehearse to yourself every day. The word is powerful. You know it's powerful. You've seen it transform your heart and life if you're a believer. You've seen it transform your mind. As Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that by testing you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Rehearse familiar truths. That's what Habakkuk did. That's what we need to do. Now let's move on to verses three and four. He rehearsed familiar truths, and then God gave to him the greatest nugget of truth that was ever given to a prophet. And Habakkuk received eternity-altering truth. 
And so must we. Look at verse 3. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He's saying the Chaldeans are going to be judged. I've got it. It's not if but when. My wrath against sin is going to get poured out. You record that vision. You, you preserve it so that all will know the certainty of its fulfillment. Babylon was going to fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, the kingdom of Cyrus, BC, uh, 539 B.C. Daniel talked about it. God is going to judge sin no matter who's involved. God always punishes sin. Judgment will fall. Wrath will fall. And the only issue is when and how he does it. And, and, and the sins were typical of, of Israel and typical of today. Verse 4, his soul is puffed up. Verse 5, arrogance, greed, like, like hell, and never satisfied. Gathering for himself people of all nations, collecting of his, for, as his own all peoples, basically taking people over, thinking that, that they're God. Like, like we're God, so we're over you. And, and this, this is, is sin. And, and God says his soul's puffed up. He's not right with me. His soul is not upright within him. And then God deposits this, this pure gold to Habakkuk. Look at the last part of verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now in Acts 13, Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5, where God says, I'm doing a thing in your time that you would not believe if I told you. And the coming judgment understood properly supports the message concerning justification by faith. By the devastation of those who thought themselves righteous, as, as God says in, in Habakkuk 2.4, their soul is not upright within him. By the devastation of those who, who thought themselves righteous by their deeds, the foundation is being laid for the message of justification by faith alone. The heart of justification is forgiveness of sins. Habakkuk establishes the fact that none can stand righteous by his deeds. Only faith in the promises of God can open the way to forgiveness. Critical to right standing with God. So we're talking about justification by faith here. This is the core message of Habakkuk. It's the core message of the Bible. It's the core message of, of the gospel. You trust God who is merciful. Uh, New Testament gives huge weight and importance theologically to Habakkuk. Uh, the Apostle Paul used this verse twice. Uh, first, as the theme of his gospel preaching, and then to correct false teaching about the gospel. He, he first says in Romans 1.16 and 17, as, as Andrew read earlier, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Then over in Galatians 3.11, he says, no one, he's correcting false teaching now, no one is justified by, before God by the law for... He quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Accentuates the doctrine of justification by faith. Why is this so important? It's just that the whole gospel hinges on it, that's why. This summarizes, again, the message of Habakkuk, the whole Bible, and the gospel. This is big. Walter Chantry wrote of this verse, and this is another tie-in between Habakkuk's time and ours. 
the Lord used the book of Habakkuk as the strong box, literally the, the safe, the safe deposit box, the vault, into which he placed one of the most precious gems of all time. It is a sentence which summarizes the gospel. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that there are only two kinds of people that have ever lived, the proud and the humble. The contrast is the key to history which unlocks the meaning of every generation living on earth. The proud is not upright and destined to die. The just shall live by faith humbly. Now, you think about what Jesus said and what Jesus taught. Jesus did not quote Habakkuk. But, very obvious as you go through the Gospels that justification by faith was the emphasis of his ministry. Matthew 8, well, I'll give you two examples. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. Story of a man looking to Jesus for help, made a request with deep humility, and of this man Jesus said, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then Jesus makes a comment about Gentiles entering the kingdom of God. Then over in Luke chapter 19, Jesus taught a parable of two men who went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, who did not really pray to God, but really to himself, he's babbling into the air, because true prayer comes from a deep heart dependence on God, and relies on him for help. The Pharisee is boasting to God about his superiority over other people, his religious achievements in his own mind. In contrast, the tax collector was unsure about drawing near to God because he had a deep sense, a deep weight upon him of his guilt and sin before God. And so he confesses that he is a sinner and begs God to be merciful to him. The Pharisee, self-confident, self-assertive before God, the tax collector puts no confidence in the flesh. It's like Paul said about himself in Philippians 3, but no confidence in the flesh relied completely on God's grace to forgive. And Jesus, in this parable, says he went down to his house justified. Luke 18, 14. Immediate justification by God, from God, by grace. Now, I want you to all do some soul searching. I want you to ask the question, am I justified? Search your soul and ask that question. Am I I justified? Does this truth of justification by faith thrill my soul and assure me, or does it strike terror in me? William Grimshaw was a pastor in England in 1731. He did all his pastorly duties. He prayed for people. He visited people. He even preached, and he was not a believer. And one day his wife dies. And he begins to earnestly seek for power over sin. He wanted purity of heart. And he gave up pleasures in life. And he avoided outward sins as best he could. He even fasted. He went without food to pray. And he even kept a diary of his sins and his prayers of confession. But he became increasingly aware of the vileness of his own heart. And he became aware of the bitterness of sin and how he had an utter inability to make himself right with God. He was trying to do this all on his own. And one day he goes and visits a friend. 
And he comes across a book by John Owen on justification. And afterward, he said, of the process that God took him through, of regeneration and salvation, he said, I was now willing to renounce myself every degree of fancied merit and ability and to embrace Christ only for my all in all. And he said, oh, what light and comfort I now enjoy in my own soul and what a taste of the pardoning love of God. Are you justified? The righteous, not the unrighteous, the righteous shall live, not die, shall live by faith, not by themselves, by faith. God's power unto salvation, the gospel is revealed from faith to faith. You must understand Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.17 to be a Christian. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Romans 1.17 says. You, under, you need to understand what that righteousness is referring to. Don't get this wrong. It is not referring to an attribute of God there. Yes, God is eternally righteous, but it would be bad news for us, not good news, if the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith is only the righteousness of God. If it's only about him. Now Luther misinterpreted this verse initially. He thought it was just a description of God. If you leave it as just a description of God, it's bad news for you. Luther said, I stood condemned. It blocked my way. You know, the law teaches God's righteousness and I'm not righteous. So what does it mean? A righteousness from God. What does it mean? It means this. A righteousness from God that satisfies God. So that you would be living in conformity to God's law and demands. You would be acceptable to God. You'd be approved by God. You would have God's revealed righteousness, God's imputed righteousness, God's gifted righteousness by faith in Christ. That's the goal of the gospel. Not that you would be happy and that you think everything is okay in your life, but that you would be holy. Not thinking you are right, but, but knowing you are right with God. Being able to stand in the presence of God unashamed. Unless you have God's righteousness, you may be able to function okay in life, but you're not a Christian and you don't have the gospel. It answers the question that Job asked, how can a man be just before God? The answer is keep the law absolutely. You'd be free from the law's condemnation. But how can that be done? That's what's revealed in the gospel, that there is only one way about this. It's God's way of solving the problem, and it is the only way of solving the problem, and the only way in which you can stand in the presence of God justified and unashamed. It is this, that God provides you with the righteousness that he demands. This is what Habakkuk 2.4 is pointing out and what Paul, what the Spirit had Paul point out in Romans 1.17. That's the gospel. It's provided by God. God himself provides us with the righteousness that he demands by grace through faith in Christ alone. Without it, you get false evangelism and false conversions and you get believism but not faith and people who call themselves Christians but are not concerned about righteousness. 
They have just taken whatever they'd like off the smorgasbord and fashioned it into their own religion. There are a lot of people like this. This is why you need to rehearse familiar truth, but also receive the eternity-altering truth of justification by, by faith alone. But as we see as we go through and, and still look at this verse, it doesn't stop there. There's one more thing. Not just rehearse familiar truth, not just receive eternity-altering truth, but the third thing that Habakkuk did is is receive it and then resolve to live by it. Verses four and five, resolve to live what you rehearse and receive. Verse four says, the righteous shall live by his faith. The gospel is intensely concerned about righteousness. Eternity altering truth that you must live. James 2.14 says, faith without works is dead. It's empty. The just shall live by faith. Live now and for eternity with God. Contrast is the Chaldeans, arrogant, greedy, like, de- like hell and death, never satisfied but always wanting more. But God's salvation is revealed from faith to faith. The writer of Hebrews captured this really well. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Show the believer's need to remain strong and faithful in the midst of affliction and trials. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The emphasis in Habakkuk and the New Testament references uh, go beyond the act of faith to include the continuity of faith. Faith is not a one-time act. It is a way of life. And the true believer, declared righteous by God, will persevere in faith as the pattern of his life. Paul said this very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. We've got to live in obedience to what God has revealed. William Mompasson was an English pastor in 16. 66, when the plague killed 267 of his 350 church members, including his wife. And he was dying himself and facing a short life, and on September 1st, 1666, wrote a letter to a friend exhorting him to obey God. Here's what he wrote. Let your dying pastor recommend this truth to you and your family, that no happiness nor solid comfort can be found in this veil of tears, like living a pious life. And pray ever to retain this rule, never to do anything upon which you dare not first ask the blessing of God. And let me put this into 2017 vernacular. Don't mess with stuff if you already know God is not pleased with it. 
And do not let this turn into a legalistic way as well. I love how Brian Hedges put it. Sometimes we approach the need for personal change as if each step of obedience were one more stair to climb in the attempt to gain peace with God. We pursue holiness from, for grace, not from grace, which reverses the order of the gospel. You'll never get traction in your transformation until your feet are firmly planted in the freedom that you have in the justifying grace of Christ. Embracing the truth of justification counters a performance-based legalistic approach to the pursuit of transformation. The just shall live by faith. Here's Habakkuk asking these fundamental questions of life. And the answers provide a foundation for us to build a proper understanding of God's character and his sovereign ways in history. Like Job, Habakkuk wrestled with God and through the process gained a deeper understanding of who God is, a firmer faith. And let me just say that the process, you know, we cannot say, well, God's just gonna give me peace and health and long life and prosperity and that will show me that he is pleased with me and that I am justified in Christ. No, you learn in hardship how to come to know God more fully and to rejoice in him for his own sake, not for the blessings he gives, not for the benefits he bestows. The, pro the process that you and I are on of trusting God and his ways is neither easy nor for the faint of heart. Here's Habakkuk getting shocking news from God. And the questions remain. In the midst of rehearsing um, bedrock truths, he grapples with God, but the bedrock truths that he rehearses keep him, keep him tethered, anchored. Then God unwraps the most eternity-altering truth of all time. The just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk receives it. And he is assured, despite appearances to the contrary, that he is safe and secure in his relationship with God no matter what. And so he resolves to live by faith. It is a mercy from God that he grants us to live by faith and continue in the faith. And Lord, we thank you that what we find as we contemplate your greatness revealed in Scripture and it holds true because you hold on to us, is that your truth never changes. May we keep rehearsing it, may we keep receiving it, may, may we keep resolving to live that truth. We thank you for the truth that continuing in the faith, our continuing in the faith is rooted in your character. And we praise you in Christ's name, amen.